When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 408th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a show business character unlike any other. Quite by accident, he has worked as a male model, an MTV VJ, a rapper, and an actor. He was the star of an X-rated tape before just about any other celebrity. He partied with Paris and Lindsay during the height of the Hollywood paparazzi era. He opened under the name Dirt Nasty for bands like the Red Hot Chili Peppers in 70,000-seat stadiums all around the world. And now, after years of middling parts on TV shows like 2005's Cuts, in which he starred opposite one Meghan Markle, and in films, including three installments of the Scary Movie franchise, he is, against all odds, a Best Actor Oscar contender for his portrayal of a has-been porn star who returns to his hometown in Sean Baker's Red Rocket. I'm talking, of course, about Simon Rex. Over the course of our conversation, the 47-year-old and I discussed how he handled the sudden fame that came to him in his early 20s when he landed his MTV gig in the mid-1990s, how a disastrous audition for Goodwill Hunting led to a more serious pursuit of an acting career, what it means to him after years of toiling in mostly obscure lightweight projects to be the star of an A24 film that premiered at Cannes and has brought him rave reviews from critics and actors alike, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Simon, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Great to have you. And uh, on this one, we really are going to Go right back to the beginning, if you wouldn't mind sharing for the listeners. Uh, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Uh, I'm from San Francisco, California. My parents were hippies. My dad is a breathwork coach where he does – I don't know if you guys are familiar with what that is, but he does uh, you know, breathwork where it's almost like a therapy where people come in and they do so – it's sort of like a new age way of uh, – you know, and, and he does rebirthing as well, like in a jacuzzi with a snorkel. And he – yeah, he's a breathwork coach. And But my parents divorced when I was two years old. So my dad went off and did that and lived in Hawaii and New Mexico and all these places where, you know – kind of hippies would do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and then my mother, I'm an only child, stayed with my mom in San Francisco and then the Bay Area. And my mom was an environmental planner, which means she would like basically make sure it was chemically and legally safe to build something on a lot that might have some type of, you know, uh, chemical leak or something like that. I, I'm, I'm probably saying it a little bit wrong, but. And then now uh, my mother's uh, retired. And lives mm -hmm. in Lake Tahoe. And my nice. dad lives in North Carolina. So, yeah. So, but I'm an only child. Parents divorced when I was two. Hence, probably why I'm in show business uh, <laughs> screaming, look at me. <laughs> well, actually, that leads into uh, a, a moment that I read about, which might have been the first actual look at me moment. What happened? Did you go to an Oakland A's game and something happened? <laughs> Yeah, I went to an Oakland A's game with my friends, and we were sitting in the bleachers. I lived in the East Bay when I went to middle school, so that's right across the bridge from San Francisco. And I went to an Oakland A's game, and the Jumbotron camera went on me and my friends, and I flipped the camera off, and 35,000 people started cracking up, and it was magic. And it kind of planted a seed. It wasn't like at that moment I'm like, oh, I want to be in show business, but I remember like, that was incredible. I made a whole state and then they cut the camera off me. Um, <laughs> How old were you then? I was probably 12 or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's and, funny. And so what were you like, you know, as you're going through high school or whatever, I mean, what were you thinking you might do with your life? Yeah, you know, I always thought it was funny that like you're supposed to pick your, you know, at 18 or 17, you need to go pick a college and decide what you want to major in and decide your life path. I'm 47 years old now and I still don't know what I'm going to do next. Like <laughs> I, I, 
I never understood that. I like how in Europe and other parts of the country, they make you take a year off, go travel, and then go to college and think about what you want to do. We kind of rush right into it. But in, to answer your question, I wanted to go into advertising. I always would think of slogans and like, uh, so I remember I had a couple ideas like, um, as a kid, I thought of these. Um, I remember I thought, oh, I could, a billboard uh, for, for camping, I could do a billboard for camping. Camping, it's intense. <laughs> so I thought of that as a kid. And then I remember, oh, I should do, you could do a commercial. Remember those crash test dummies that were like, yeah, in, yeah, yeah. so I was like, oh, we, we a cool Mercedes commercial. If you had some crash test dummies driving a Mercedes really fast into a wall. And at the last minute, the dummy drives away and escapes out and drives down a road and doesn't crash the car. And he looks <laughs> over and says, I'm no dummy. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff like that would be in my head. So I was like, oh, I want to do advertising. But then. That never happened. I went to one year of community college. Not even. I went to one semester of community college up in San Francisco area. And I mm -hmm. studied like astronomy and public speaking and just kind of like, you know, I, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So I never finished college. And, you know, I, I, I basically my, my life went down a very different path. So I never ended up, you know, needing to get a college degree or do advertising. But my brain still works that way. <laughs> I was going to say, I think, uh, you know, those are those are evergreens. You could still trot those out one day, you know. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> but um, all right. So I guess this might have been while you were at that community college or around that time. You how does how does modeling enter the picture? So I was living um, I was at a rave in San Francisco back in the 1993 and I was at a rave like at a warehouse back when you know that's what you did as a kid in the 90s and this girl comes up to me and she takes my beanie off my head and basically runs her fingers through my hair and she was this pretty model girl and where I'm from in San Francisco Bay Area you don't see that too often I worked at a potato sack factory in Oakland driving a forklift literally at a potato sack factory where I would, you know, as more industrial as you could possibly imagine in, in Oakland. And uh, I meet this girl and she was a model and or aspiring model. And mm -hmm. I basically dropped everything and moved in with her and her two-year-old kid. And her two-year-old kid's starting to call me dad. And I'm like, oh, I'm in way over my head here. I'm like 18 <laughs> years old. And I would drive her to her modeling castings in LA. I moved to LA with her. I'm driving around to her castings and one day I'm sitting in the waiting room with her son on my lap and the client comes out and says, who's he? And she's like, oh, that's my boyfriend. He's not a model. And they're like, we're interested in him for uh, something. Next thing you know, I'm on a flight to Milan to shoot some <laughs> modeling job. And next thing you know, I, I get a modeling agent in Milan. I get a modeling agent in Paris. I get a modeling agent in New York. And I just kind of, instead of going to college, I moved to Europe and I just did male modeling, which was pretty boring. But I was like, oh, this is fun. I get to be around beautiful people and not go to college and live in Europe. And yeah, I was going to say, like, could you believe this? It does seem like it kind of happened pretty quickly starting in, in your, I guess, your late teens. Uh, what, what did you make of all that? What did your family make of all that? Well, you know, my mom never pressured me into like, you need to go to college and, you know, get a degree. And that. she never really pushed it on me. So she was actually like, oh, how cool you get to go to Europe and go do it. Why not go live your life? That sounds amazing. I wish I could have done that at your age. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's what I did. And I basically just was a leaf in the wind and went to Europe and, and just kind of floated around and got to experience to me, actually, I think it was just as educational life experience as going to sit in a classroom and studying books all day, I got to go taste, walk through, smell, eat, live, love in Europe, Absolutely. in New York, back at a time when it was still pre-cell phone, pre-internet, when it was still like that, the last time on the planet Earth that was sort of like uh, without all that technology. So I would just show up in a city with a fold out map and have to figure it out. And it was awesome. You know, yeah. you're kind of forced to just grow up and learn and uh, adapt. And, and I'm, I'm kind of a chameleon, like I'll blend in anywhere. And, and I, yeah, I just had that experience. And then I really wasn't fulfilled with modeling because you're kind of just standing there and you're in a competing with other dudes about who's better looking like it's pretty lame. <laughs> um, but it was fun. And, um, and then that led to when I was living in New York, I yes. don't know if you'll remember, there was a male supermodel, the first male supermodel. His name was Marcus Schenkenberg. And I was at the same agency he was. And he was like, at the time, the biggest thing. He was the first male supermodel. 
So at MTV, they were going to have him on as a guest on one of their shows to interview him. He was too busy to do the rehearsal. My modeling agent said, hey, send Simon to fill in his shoes. I bet you he'll get a job out of this because they knew I was a funny guy. So, of course, I go fill in for him and I'm zinging and zanging and I'm improving and I'm messing around. And the producers of the show were like, we should give Simon a, a job. And I remember them saying, uh, hey, do you want a job as a VJ? And I said, I have no journalism experience. I have no music knowledge and I've never done television. They said, perfect. You got the job. <laughs> well, that is incredible. And and I guess, you know, I remember, of course, and I know a lot of our listeners will, you know, what a big deal that was. But let's just say there's some people who are listening who, you know, only know MTV post music videos. Like what what can you set the scene? This is 1995 that I, th- I think you're starting there, right? Six, yeah, ninety six and ninety seven, yeah. Okay, so what did it mean to be a a VJ for MTV, and and how just what a big deal, you know, MTV for for especially kids was the thing. There's no internet really at that point, right? That's exactly right. And I was on at 3 to 4 p.m., which was the best slot because kids would run home from school to turn on MTV to see what new music was out. So they gave me like the best slot for whatever reason. They just liked me and thought I had something. And I, you know, again, I don't know why, but they just believed in me and threw me in the, the most powerful highly rated time slot, 3 to 4. And I would announce videos and interview athletes, musicians, movie stars. So I just met everyone. And again, like you said, this was before social media and the internet. So this was the only place to go to find out what's cool, what new music there is, what new movies are. So this, it was like a one one stop shop was MTV in the mid nineties and before. So I was in the middle of everything, right? I was like the conduit to all pop culture. You know, I'm interviewing Howard Stern for his movie Private Parts on live TV. I'm interviewing Madonna on the red carpet as she walks by. I'm interviewing Tupac, you yeah, know, right before he died. Interviews. Yeah. So it was just like I was just thrown into this world and overnight had sort of fame because everyone was like, oh, that's the guy from, you know, so I just met everybody. And like, if you think about it, it's kind of the perfect segue into entertainment. And most VJs, they don't really parlay it into an acting career. They sort of will go on to do other hosting gigs or maybe they'll be a DJ in, you know, Philadelphia after Mm -hmm. or, or, you know. Someone like Carson Daly, who actually we can get into in a minute, was smart enough Mm -hmm. to pitch TRL. He created TRL and made a lot of money off that. And he really parlayed his uh, VJ path. For me, my path was pretty different in that I didn't know what I was going to do after being a VJ. I never even asked to do it, just like I didn't ask to, to be a model. It just fell into my lap. So sure enough, I'm at MTV and my roommate at the time, had forgot to tell me that Gus Van Sant had called my landline at the this is before cell phones. Gus Van Sant saw me on MTV and said, I want him in Goodwill Hunting, my new movie with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. <laughs> so I noticed a piece of paper underneath the TV and it's, it was scribbled, my roommate's handwriting, Gus Van Sant, phone number. And I go, what's this? He's like, oh, sorry, I forgot to tell you. That's been there for like two weeks. Uh, Gus Van Sant, <laughs> some guy called for you. And I was like, Wait, the director? You know, like, oh, my God, the Drugstore Cowboy is my favorite movie. What what the hell's going on? So I call Gus. He's like, I've been waiting for your call. I want to read you for a movie. So I go in. I sit there with Matt Damon. I read a scene with him. It's for a very small role where uh, Matt Damon beats up a bully who had, like, it's just like two lines. So I'm reading the lines with Matt Damon in front of Gus Van Sant, and Gus stops me and goes, Simon, I have to stop you. This is really bad. You're not ready for this. I'm like, well, thank you. I know I've never done this before. He's like, uh, you need to go to acting class, but you have something. You're just not ready for this yet. So go to acting school. So he kind of sent me to these like New York theater classes. So I started taking acting classes in New York. And of course I was the guy who was on MTV. So all these other like struggling actors hated me because I just waltz in (laughs) through Gus Van Sant on MTV. And now I'm an actor and they're like, Oh, this guy ain't an actor. Right. But I learned a lot, you know, I learned a lot about, you know, putting up scenes from plays and acting and I just got the gist of it. And so thank you, Gus Van Sant. Um, I wouldn't be sitting here without you had I not seen that little piece of paper that day. That's amazing. Well, let me, let me, Rewind for one second, though, because when you blew up 
through MTV, you know, all of a sudden it's like you go from being not nobody because you were doing modeling and stuff, but to, you know, to the general public at large, I don't think anyone would have necessarily known who you were. Now they know who you are. Your name's out there every day. You're doing this every day. How did you acclimate? I think you were only 21 or 22. Was that, I mean, I'm sure on one level it's probably cool, but was it also, you know, jarring? Yeah, it was definitely jarring. And, I, and I'm still 25 years later, fame is a weird thing. It's it's hard to explain unless you've experienced it, but it's very, if you're, I'm very sensitive and, and, um, Generally speaking, I get love. Like people come up like, you're funny. Oh, man, you got me through a tough time. You know, I love your comedy. So it feels good to like, you know, contribute and put stuff out there that is. And I, I like being an entertainer. I was the class clown in school. And so but what comes with it is that weird attention that you get where you don't really know if people like you for you or if they just like you because you're on TV and maybe you have something to offer them and they want to use you to help their career. And, you know, you don't know if women really like you for you, if maybe they're just interested in the idea of you. Um, so it's really a strange thing, fame. And I still, you know, you never really, I guess you kind of get used to it, but it's still strange. It, it was jarring and it still is. And like just now on the way in here, this lady like slows down and is looking at me in the garage and my instinct is like, what are you looking at? And then I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe she saw me on TV. Like, maybe, I, I don't know. And then you go through all these things in your head. Like, does she, it's just weird. It's just I weird. Bet. And, and especially and, at that age. Yeah, especially that at that age overnight. But I was living in New York and I was young and cocky and carefree. I think it actually didn't affect me as much then because I was just sort of like young and, and arrogant, I guess you could say. not Not like cocky, arrogant, more like. Yeah, what's the, this is, you know, enjoying and reveling and, and uh, enjoying the newfound fame and what comes with it, which is getting right into the club, getting the best right. table at the restaurant, meeting up. So, yeah, it's fun. It's cool. Um, but it's a double edged sword. Well, I, I yeah, I guess, you know, the flip side of, of that, which is that after what, like two years, just one day you show up and it's over. Right. I mean, not fame, but the job and, and not just, it wasn't specifically you. I know, I know there, you know, things going waves at MTV in those days. And I think there was just they, the new cycle, right? Yeah. Yeah. They fired all the VJs in one day. There was like four of us. It was me. And uh, there was a Hispanic girl named Idalis. And then there was a rocker dude named John Sencio. And then there was a, they, they basically replaced all four, like, you know, uh, types one day they fired all of us. And then the white guy they replaced me with was Carson Daly. And oh, wow. at the time I was crushed because it was just out of the blue. They just let us all go. And I went from, you know, being on MTV to just nothing. And I was like, well, good thing I've been taking acting classes. Maybe I could parlay this into something. So I had a, you know, um, I was basically still in New York till like 98. I had a horrible thing happen. A friend of mine committed suicide in my apartment. It got real oh. dark real fast. So I lost my job. I lost my friend. I was kind of looking around New York going, I got to get out of here. So I moved to LA in 98 and I still was sort of in people's fresh in their minds uh, from MTV that I started going in on auditions in LA and I just started booking everything. I just booked you know, movies, TV shows. This is when Warner Brothers, the WB was the new network mm -hmm. and they would just give me holding deals. This is back when, and in time when they would actually pay you six figures to say, Hey, we're holding you. Don't go audition for NBC, CBS, you know? So right. I was just like, okay, <laughs> this doesn't suck. And yeah. you know, I bought a nice house in the Hills and a brand new car. And I was just, there was, there was a lot of money flying around back then and yeah. way more than now. So I was like, hey, this is pretty sweet. And like you said, everything kind of comes in waves. So I had a moment. Um, I was the shiny new guy and I was, you know, doing shows like Felicity, um, yes. the Amanda Bynes sitcom, What I Like About You, uh, Jack and Jill with like Amanda Peet and, you know, all these amazing actors. Incidentally, playing a guy named Mikey on That's right. Jack and Jill. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. I played a few Mikeys in my life. Um, yeah. and, and then so everything was great, you know. And then the WB went away. Remember, I think they merged with the CW. So then all of a sudden work slowed down. I did Scary Movie 3. Mm -hmm. And then just like anything else, it's peaks and valleys. You know, you're at the top, you're at the bottom. You're at the top, you're at the bottom. And, and you know, I was, I was just doing really well. And I was just very, 
very fortunate. And um, then, as you know, in this business, you're lucky to work six months out of the year as an actor. Like if you're working six months out of the year, you're working a lot, right? Totally. I just want to interrupt you for one second because there's something that something that I think I, I believe you like to clear up, and I, I think it would be helpful for listeners. And that is that there is somehow urban legend. There's whatever the assumption of a lot of people is that your time at MTV ended because of something kind of leaking out that was that was filmed at, I guess, at a time when you were still modeling or whatever, and that that was, that somehow scandalized MTV and that, that they no longer wanted you. That is not the case, right? That's not the case. That's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, you know, Jenny McCarthy at the time was a big VJ and she was in Playboy magazine. So they said to me, Hey, look, if we were to let you go, uh, for basically having the same exact thing that Jenny McCarthy has, that wouldn't be fair. So we're not we're not firing you. And I stayed there for another year. So this was yeah. way later. And then one day they replaced all of us. But you know, people always have that misunderstanding, and and they I can see how they would put that together. But that's simply not what happened. And, and when that thing ha- did happen, though, just not to harp on it, but very briefly, that was not was that upsetting to you? Was it traumatic? I mean, it's something. I don't know. Did it just come out of the blue? Yeah, I mean, obviously that was something like, oh, uh, whoops, that this is uh, this could um, affect me getting work. Um, so luckily, it really didn't. I mean, I've you know managed to continue to work throughout my career, and I think there's uh, you know it's it's more of a juicy story that you know it's it, it, everybody kind of has some type of scandal in this business somehow and i guess that was mine but you know looking back that was so it was almost 30 years ago it really doesn't define me and i've managed to be able to continue to work and and i and especially nowadays i think people are really you know having a new changed attitude on 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 things like this because it's really totally. just not a, it's not a big deal and it's just sort of without all the things in my life that have happened I wouldn't be doing this movie sitting here talking to you so everything that's happened has been uh, unplanned no, totally. fortuitous path to now so I'm I'm no I and no I only regrets. I only bring it up because I could see how you know when we're talking about the whirlwind of being a guy in your early twenties who's suddenly thrust into the spotlight and then to have something like that on top of it I mean I you know we um. We had Jennifer Lawrence on this podcast at one point, and she had a, a thing where it was, you know, completely involuntarily leaked stuff about her. And, and it is a, you know, people, it can be traumatic. So I just, I, I think it is a testament to you that you, you know, have, you got past it by, by a lot. And, and, I, and I just wanted to see how that, how that period was for you. But more importantly, as you say, there's that, that run of work that came along. And I, I guess I would be, you know, there are going to be people listening to this who would be crushed if I didn't bring up, you know, if we didn't talk a little bit about the fact that there were these three scary movie uh, installments that you did over a period of years, which was, I guess showing a side of yourself that maybe hadn't been out there before, which is that you're a pretty funny guy. I mean, and I know you tried stand up. Mm-hmm. I guess you didn't love that, but but comedy in terms of acting, was that something that you always found yourself drawn to? Yeah, I really that's sort of what I feel is my my brain just works that way. I'm always trying to find the joke and everything and maybe uh, you know, I, I I don't I don't know what it comes from. I think it's being an only child and having to entertain myself. I mean, I will I could be by myself all day long and literally laugh out loud like a maniac because of things that I'm thinking or do. like I just like I just think comedy is the answer. If you if you could laugh at things, that's you know I don't know I don't know much, but if I was to give any advice, like don't take yourself too seriously and try to find the the joke in in things and not take life and yourself too seriously. Um, but what do I know? That's just sort of how I walk through life. Um, uh, I take my work very seriously, but I don't take myself that seriously, if that makes sense. Um, and yeah, I love comedy. I grew up watching, you know, Airplane, Naked Gun, Mel Brooks movies, sitcoms. Like I always just was attracted to. Uh, stand-up comedians. So for me, doing comedy like in Scary Movie was actually really natural. It kind of came naturally. But what's interesting is I remember going to audition for Scary Movie, and it was between me and Ryan Reynolds. We were the last (laughs) two guys for the lead in Scary Movie. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm not going to get it. Ryan Reynolds will get it. And sure enough, I got it. And I was that was a very big job. You know, it paid a lot of 
money. It was yeah. already an existing franchise. They were just monsters. And I remember um, during the audition process, I was trying to be funny. Like I was reading the lines and being performative and funny. And, and, and David Zucker, the director, goes, no, no, Simon, Simon, stop trying to be funny. The situation is funny. Read the lines normal, dramatic, normal acting, and it's funnier. So then I remember reading the lines without trying to be funny, and they're all cracking up. And I go, yeah. oh, I get it. It's like Leslie Nielsen in Naked Gun. He's I not, was just he, going to say, yeah. He's just reading the lines. He's not yeah. He's not being funny. He just reads the lines monotone like this, and it's hilarious. So and in, in the scary fact, yeah, you, yeah. you got to share a scene with him in one of those, I did. Right? I, yeah, I yeah. got to work with him. I mean, that was, that was a dream. I mean, I worked with so many talented people on that movie, and... And, uh, you know, um, Anna Ferris to Kevin Hart, to Anthony Anderson, you name it. That, that I just got to work with everyone. And um, but yes, that type of comedy is very specific and different and very, uh, you know, there's no room for improv. And it's just got to be exactly as it's written and played seriously. But those movies are so funny and so much fun that I kind of got stuck in within Hollywood. I remember Anna Ferris telling me, you know, watch what's going to happen to you. You're going to get stuck as the scary movie guy and you're not going to be taken seriously as an actor. And she was right. You know, like I, yeah, I booked some sitcoms here or there or some indie movie, but I never really was taken uh, seriously or, or even uh, got called in to do like a dramatic acting role. Um, because I was the scary movie guy. Oh, he could slip on a banana peel, but it, can he, you know, perform a real grounded moment? So until this movie, Red Rocket, I was never really given the opportunity. And Sean Baker saw something in me that he was like, someone needs to give Simon Rex a shot. I know he could do dramatic acting. We already know he could do comedy. And his gut just said to, to go with me. And uh, I feel that I didn't let him down because obviously the movie's getting oh, a great response. Great. And, and I got to do some real acting, not just I get to do comedy because it is a dark comedy. Absolutely. Well, and I, I do want to I guess let's let's go back to the period when you were doing the scary movies and stuff. Were you interested in and, and you know, if it were up to you, would you have been doing more dramatic stuff or at that time of your life? Were you, you know, content doing only comedy? I mean, I was content doing only comedy, but I would have loved to also, I, I mean, you want to do it all. You don't want to just be one note, you know, I mean, I'm not comparing myself to him, but like, look at Adam Sandler, like he could do a very broad comedy and then go do punch drunk love and, and right. be like really, uh, a, a, an amazing actor, you know? So I always, I always knew I could do it. I always believed in myself, you know, I just was never really given the opportunity until, more recently. And yeah, you know, I've done like obviously shows like, like Jack and Jill and Felicity on WB. Those weren't comedies. Mm -hmm. They were grounded in reality, but that was television at a time when, you know, back then you really couldn't do TV and film that, that was like mm -hmm. back in those days where it was like, you were either a TV actor or a film actor. It was like, that was like towards right. the end of that. Now you, you could do everything. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, I never really got a chance to show that I could maybe do something grounded and real. And I think I, at this point in my life, I think I've had enough life experience that I have more to pull from. You know, when you're young, in your 20s, you know, you haven't lived enough to really have anything to, to pull out of right. you. It's right. easy to do comedy in your 20s because you're just bada boom, you know, telling a joke. But with dramatic acting, it's like now I've had so many moments in my life that I could draw from some pain and struggle and, and, and you know, so it's. I think as you get older, you just have more shades to you. If that doesn't Absolutely. sound too actory, <laughs> no, it's it's exactly it makes a lot of sense. And you know, one other thing that occurs to me, I, you know, you're saying that because you had done comedy and and very successfully, that that made people maybe limited their ideas of what you could do. The other thing that I wonder is, you know, we talked about how MTV came along at a time before the internet, but your time in LA when you were getting f first hot out here came along at the ultimate moment of paparazzi and tabloid obsession, you know, probably the height of it. And you're a young good-looking guy. You're going out as anyone probably would in your situation. And I think you, to some degree, it seems like for some people became very associated with some of the other tabloid fixtures. Right. And I know you are friends with, and have worked with Paris Hilton and, Maybe I think actually Lindsay Lawn probably in the scary movies and all of that. So, do, but do you think in hindsight that maybe that also made people categorize you as, you know, we're not 
he's not he's not the guy to go to for something serious. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, I was like kind of seen as like a party guy who was out with Paris Hilton, hanging out, going to the clubs. And I and in all fairness, yeah, I I did choose that. And like you said, I was a young dude in L.A., which kind of my priorities weren't really there. I wasn't you know, focused on my career. I was focused on having fun, you know? And look, yeah, totally. I, um, I mean, I still would make my auditions and I would still work here and there, but my priorities weren't in order. I was more like, yeah, I was trying to have a good time, you know? So I, yes, it's totally fair to say that between being the scary movie guy and being seen out on the party scene that, you know, uh, he's not a serious actor, right? So yes, I absolutely agree that that's fair to say, and uh, but I have no regrets. I had a good time; it was fun. I bet <laughs> I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah, that's when LA was fun too. Like I'd go to the Playboy Mansion, and right. you know, I remember going to the Playboy Mansion when Hefner first got divorced, and it was very hard to get into the Playboy Mansion. I'm like, you know, my twenties. I'm like, yeah, that's what. Yeah, it's a dream. I, I'd be, yeah. I would be a fool if I didn't do all that stuff. But you know, well, and then totally. obviously. Like I was saying before, like if you work six months out of the year, you're working yes. a lot. So I picked up music as a hobby, and this didn't help my serious acting either. Is I started <laughs> doing this comedic rap character called Dirt Nasty, and I was just doing it with my friends in my spare bedroom and handing CDs out at the club to like Leonardo DiCaprio because I kind of knew these actors, and I'd be handing it out to you know um, these. This is back in the CD burner days. Yeah, yeah. So me. So me and Mickey Avalon and Andre Legacy, my two friends that were like funny rappers, I would just make beats, record demos and hand them out. And somehow it got in the hands of a manager who signed us. Next thing you know, Interscope Records, you know, has us on tour with the Red Hot Chili Peppers in Europe. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? Again, fortuitous. Totally yeah, yeah, I, was, right. <laughs> I wasn't, I was not trying. I mean, I was having fun. I wasn't handing the CD out. Like I'm going to make it as a rapper. I was like, check right. out this ridiculous shit I'm doing with my friends. And, well, and that's no, but that's hilarious because like, it's, it's your life itself could be a documentary, just the, the twists and turns and, and, and where we are now. But I mean, with that, just correct me if I'm wrong, but again, just how all the dots can sometimes connect in a weird way. That whole interest in beats right goes back to a another guy who was sort of not necessarily considered a uh serious actor until he then goes and wins a freaking oscar right yep that's right uh, adrian that? brody adrian brody uh and i were, were tight and he always would be making beats he had these like little yamaha keyboards that were like battery operated he's always be on a set doing a movie somewhere and he'd be making beats and I had other friends that are in the music industry that made beats. And I was like, you know, let me, let me give this a try. We're talking late 90s. So Adrian was like, go get this keyboard at Guitar Center. He took me there and he taught me how to make beats on this little drum machine. And I just did it as a hobby. And over the years, I started getting more music equipment and jamming and having people come over to my place and just having fun. Like there was, there was no delusions of grandeur that I was going to make it in the music industry. It was a hobby. And that hobby became a career because, again, when, you know, we got – basically uh, sent out with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and working with, you know, big rappers and other, you know, Kesha and, and LMFAO in the early 2000s. Yeah. And I remember my acting agent, you know, calling me up for a big audition. And I'm like, uh, I'm actually on my way to Poland right now to do a Chili Peppers. Op- we're opening up for them. They're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I'm doing this music thing. I don't know what's going on, but I'd be a fool to not explore it. It sounds like fun. So I kind of yeah. turned my back on... Hollywood because it's, it was hard to do both and in my mind I was like oh Jack Black does it he has his little rock band on the side and he's an actor but it didn't really work that way for me because I, I hit the road and created a monster sort of with this funny dirt nasty character that people can't really decipher the difference between a persona and yourself and this was a total ridiculous over-the-top character that I was playing I don't you know it's just it was it was meant to be a, a parody a, a joke and um, just making fun of Hollywood and all these things. And it really took off. I mean, we went platinum. We sold a million downloads and I have a platinum plaque on my wall <laughs> that I'm like, this is hilarious. I wasn't even trying to, you know. And Well, I mean, these are songs that people knew and listen. I mean, 1980, yeah. my, my Dick, Animal yeah. Lover. <laughs> yeah. And I the mean, songs, so- if, any, if anyone's listening to the songs, they're obviously tongue in cheek. To yes. Right? I mean, that's yes. Uh, yes. some funny stuff there. I mean, I'm touring with Mark Ronson in Europe. I'm going, I mean, it was insane and it was so much fun, but then I'm missing all of these opportunities for my acting career. So by the time, 
my agents just were over it. They're like, dude, what do you want to do? You know? And then, so sure enough, I kind of, I don't regret it because it was so much fun to do it. But then as you get older, I'm in my late thirties rapping. I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I could be acting until I'm 70. I'm not going to be rapping until I'm 70. So I tried to claw my way back into Hollywood and they had kind of closed the door on me really. So minus an odd job here and there, like Joseph Kahn put me in a movie called bodied. That was like a battle rap movie um, or like a direct offer like that would come in. But for the most part, and I understand why, you know, my agents and casting directors were sort of, disenchanted with me choosing to do something else. I didn't know how to split the two, I guess. Anyway. Well, the one time you were able to thread the needle, I guess, was Scary Movie 3. You play a, a right. white rapper in there, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that, that was sort of confusing to people because they're like, wait a minute, you're really rapping? You're playing Eminem? Well, what's going on here? You know. <laughs> uh, but I like to keep people guessing, and it's fun to reinvent yeah. yourself all the time. And I'm right. constantly doing different things. I want to do it all, you know? Yeah. Um, so anyway, luckily... Sean Baker, out of the blue, yes. <laughs> now here we are. So I got my, I think I got let back into the Hollywood uh, dinner table, which is Absolutely. nice. Absolutely. And one one last note before we um, talk about Red Rocket, just a fun fact where I, I had heard about this and I, I guess I didn't remember, I didn't know, but I went back this morning and looked again at both the music videos for both... Uh, TikTok with Kesha and yeah. sexy, and I know it for LMFAO, and uh, there you are. So yeah. you uh, you have uh, you're you're you've popped up in a lot of different areas of pop culture over over the decades. It's a pretty pretty unique path, but as you say, leads to this movie, which I was lucky enough to see in Cannes and loved, and that is Red Rocket. Which just to kind of uh, give the listeners a, a sense if they haven't heard yet. I mean, basically, this is a porn star whose best days are maybe behind him, but uh, and he's burned a lot of bridges, ends up going back from, you know, I guess San Fernando Valley to his hometown or, or where he'd lived in Texas, where he had burned just about every bridge, including his wife and or his ex-wife. I, I don't know if they ever formalized their divorce uh but we're still married technically but in the movie yeah. i forget that we're married so yeah yeah <laughs> and her mother-in-law who yeah. are real pieces of work uh i oh, think yeah. our critic uh in the review said something like meth heads out of some he had some great line but uh the, so let me ask you this when was the first time you heard anything about this project and uh and how was it presented to you so I was just sitting around in Joshua Tree uh, a year ago now, or actually just a little more than a year ago. We shot it last 2020 in September. So it was about August. I was sitting around staring at the ceiling fan, wondering what's going on in the world because of the pandemic and there was riots and it was just crazy. And I had just moved to the desert and I was just kind of sitting around like wondering, you know, what's next for everyone and myself and what's going to happen. And I get a phone call from a uh, friend of mine who is very close with Sean Baker's sister, Stefanik. And she says, hey, Simon, what are you doing for the next month? I'm like, nothing. She says, you know, Sean Baker's? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he's interested in you for his new movie. Uh, they wanted me to call you so they didn't hit you on Instagram and and, and you not see the DM. Um, can I give Sean your number? Absolutely. Sean calls me. He says, here's the loose outline of the movie. I'm going to send you one paragraph to read. Can you put it on? So I put it on this phone right here on my kitchen yeah. counter. I did a cold read, sent it to him. He goes, you got the job. I need you in Texas in three days. <laughs> don't do and he's like do you trust me it's like yeah i don't know you but yeah i trust you he goes i don't want to deal with any agents or managers it's going to slow the process down i need you here immediately if i fly you here i got to quarantine you for a week we need you in three days you have a rental car waiting for you down the street in uh yucca valley and you're going to drive right here and we're going to get right into it and uh just have someone sign off besides an agent or a manager, because I, I don't want to, he's sort of like the anti-Hollywood director guy, yeah, yeah. Um, which I love. And so basically I totally trusted him. I mean, it's Sean Baker. I knew I had nothing else going on <laughs> and I read the script. I loved it. I thought it was 
definitely well written because it's fucking Sean Baker and his partner yeah. Chris, and it was funny. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll kill this, um, and I'm going to go for it. And I'm on every page, and this is a lot. So I deleted my social media, so I didn't have to look at my phone and be distracted. Off, I deleted it all off my phone. I drove straight to Texas with my at the time girlfriend, and we took turns driving. And I just memorized the lines, and she'd help me with it. And then uh, by the time we got there, it was just like, all right, we got one day to rehearse. Let's go. And I just got thrown into it and we Let just, me stop you though, because this yeah. is, this is crazy. Like you yeah, get a crazy. call out of the blue, be here in three days. You're the lead of a movie. Like yeah. it's not like you, as you've said, you know, you were sitting around. It wasn't exactly the hottest moment of your career when this came about. This is a guy who, you know, has just coming off of, of some major, you know, not large scale movies, but movies that certainly got a lot of attention, Florida Project and Tangerine and all this. Like, did you think you were being pranked or something here at any point? This is crazy. Uh, it, you know, I didn't think I was being pranked, but it was one of those things that was just like often in life, if something's too good to be true, it usually is. So I was just kind of like, you know what? I'll probably go shoot this movie. It's going to be during COVID. We probably won't even get through it. I'll believe it when I see it. When we're, I'll, I'll be, I'll be excited when we wrap shooting. And uh, until then, I'm, I'm just going to go for it and whatever. Um, give it my all, but I'm not getting emotionally attached to any result. That's for sure. And it's hard enough to shoot a $1 million budget movie, much less in a pandemic. I mean, it was very ambitious with non, with first time actors who had never been in a movie on film. So you couldn't mess up because we were on film. So it was like lights, camera, action, baby, don't burn this film. So it was just a chaos storm of just, you know, small crew, I mean, it was insane, but that energy worked because yeah. you feel human beings feel it's not just reading lines and like you can feel the energy. It's similar to the music I did. It was it worked because you felt me and my friends having a good time, you know, rapping, laughing with this movie. That energy comes through the screen of just sort of like riding on the fine line of just yeah. the edge and, and hustling. It, it, yes, and it comes through on the screen because we were really experiencing that. And I don't think it could have worked any other way. You know, there was no trailer I was relaxing in. We were shooting without permits, it totally rogue, you know, hiding from cops and neighbors and shoot, go, oh, shoot, shoot, go, go. I mean, it was insane, but I loved <laughs> it. It was actually my favorite way to shoot a movie. You know, would I, you know, obviously want to do a big budget movie and make a lot of money? Yeah, of course. This wasn't a big payday, it wasn't comfortable. But if, it couldn't have been any other way, you know? And it's a great calling card for anything else that you ever want to do because people really see what you're capable of. It's a it's a challenging, I would think, a, a, a demanding part to be in every scene and, and, you know, playing a guy who, I mean, how, I guess here's, it leads to, to begs the question, like, he's a kind of confident, cocky guy, a narcissistic guy, but like, I guess, what did you find most challenging about playing this guy? Was what was the the greatest stretch for you to capture? Well, okay, so I'm nothing like this character, frankly. He is a malignant narcissist, sociopath, you know, delusions of grandeur. Um, he'll cut people's heads off to get to the top. Me in real life, like I've never been that person. I've seen people around me in, in this business who are capable of doing whatever it takes to get to the top. And I've just never been that way. And which is probably why I also didn't have more success was because like I didn't I don't have that in me. Right. Um, Mikey, the character of Mikey, is that guy. Um, and the, the the thing that I just tried to do was. When you read the script, it's like, oh, this guy is horrible. How is the audience going to root for this guy, right? There's no way that um, anyone's going to be on his side. I better make him boyish, likable, charming, cute. Maybe he doesn't know what he's doing. So that's really what I had to do. And that's a quality that I think I have is like Peter Pan syndrome. I still right. act and am like a little kid sometimes. And, you know, I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing, but I definitely, uh, you know, I don't have, a, I've never been married or had kids. I'm sort of like forever young in my mind. And yeah. I love being that way, right? Uh, yeah. Maybe it's good or bad. I don't know. But that's just who I am. So I applied that to it, that boyish sort of uh, innocence maybe, um, and made him 
just charming and likable. And I knew that if I could pull that off, then the audience would stay tuned in and and care about what's going to happen to this guy at the end of the movie. Otherwise, it's not interesting because you're like, screw this guy. I love playing the anti-hero. Like most anti-hero movies like Taxi Driver or Bad Lieutenant or Eastbound and Down or Larry David, these are non, these are people that you're like, they're not good people necessarily, but you you find yourself kind of rooting for them in some weird way. Yeah. And that's a fun character to play. That to me is fun. Um, so that's all I did was make it very obvious in my mind every time I was doing a scene, just try to make them likable so the audience cares. That was well, it. I think you you made a great calculation there because the the question that kind of hovers over the whole movie, at least for me, when I when you come out of it and I'll say spoiler alert. So people want to skip over the next few seconds, but like basically is he interested in strawberry because he's now reaching a point where he actually is in touch with his feelings and he cares about somebody or is she just another vehicle for him to try to mount a comeback and another person he can use along the way. And I think the fact that we don't know one way or the other, at least me is a testament to the performance. I think. Yeah, thank you. And that's exactly right. I think that it's uh, you want it to be left open to interpretation. So the audience has to do some work. If you just give it to him, that's what Sean does so well. He he leaves his endings very open. He leaves everything open to interpretation. So you have to well, what, it, what you know, and everyone has a different take on so much of his movies, which I love. So, yeah, um, I, um, you know, in, in looking back at filming it, Really, I was just hustling and I tried to make it believable that he really was interested in her and infatuated with her and attracted to her, but also she was his ticket out of there. So it was both, you know, and I had to commit to that. And just realistically, each person I interacted with in the movie, which was only like, you know, five characters, there was the, my, the, the neighbor Lonnie. I just wanted a ride from him. So I just made a very clear want. What do I want right. from this character? Well, from Lonnie, I want a ride and I want a dude to talk to and I need a bro to hang out and go to the strip club with who's going to listen to me brag all day. With a Susie, I want, um, you know, I want my meal ticket back into the business, into L.A. and to make money and an, and an, an attractive, you know, woman. Um, so I, I, that's my want. Um, with my wife, um, Lexi, I need shelter, a place to stay. And I, you know... It, I had nowhere to go, so that was my yeah. want with her. With Le- Leandria, I needed money, so I start selling drugs for her. So basically, right. it was just real clear. I just, I just wanted something from all it's of all them. It's all transactional, do, yeah. That's it. That's it. Yeah. And it was actually quite simple. So there wasn't. I'd be lying if I said, "Oh, I did some method acting and I, you know, studied this and that." Really, I just used my imagination and I went with my instinct and had fun with it. And um, Sean Baker showed me a clip of a guy that he had done a character study on who Mikey is loosely based on. So he showed me an interview that he had done with the guy. I'm like, I got it. I just saw a few minutes of the guy. I'm like, I totally get it. I know a lot of people like this. They're just blindly, you know, delusional and talking about themselves in the third person and don't, it's just. Now was that that guy guy. also an adult film actor? Yes. He was someone that he had found because he had been doing research on this story for many years. And he found a guy who I I can't say his name, who this is loosely based on. So he's like, I don't want you to do an impression of this guy, but this is the guy, this is the archetype. So I'm like, Oh dude, I got it. I know there's a lot of people (laughs) in Hollywood like this. I'm sure there's a lot of people in, in, on wall street, in politics, there's always this type of person. And it's very, uh, I I knew how to play that guy, you know? And did Sean, kind of explain why throughout the film they're sort of a why it's set in you know summer of 2016 and why there are these kinds of past glancing references to trump like is it meant to be kind of a sense that either mikey is the kind of guy like i guess is he a trumpian guy in your imagine in as the way you see it like do you see the parallels yeah i see so i think that there's definitely um i don't know if Originally in the script, there was actually stuff we didn't end up doing where Mikey would say, Trump's going to win. Not that he believes in Trump's politics, but he just knew that Trump was going to win because he knows that he gets over on people and he probably saw a connection in their, you know, sort of blind narcissistic ways. And, And I think the point is that, you know, it's sort of a take on American narcissistic big dick energy 
you know, yeah. sort of that whole thing. And uh, I believe he made it take place in 2016 because that was a pivotal point in America where, you know, um, it was almost like we were living in a reality show or something. So that's why he has throughout the movie, one scene, it'll be the uh, campaign of, of Trump or Clinton. And then the next scene, it would be like a reality TV show and how it's kind of all the same thing. And um, it was such a wild time where everybody was, you know, starting to get really divided. And it was just sort of, we were on the precipice of, of that, you know, what we're still living in now, which is really strange times. So I mean, that's just what I've heard Sean say in other interviews. I can't really tell you exactly why he did it. You know, he's not really trying to make any heavy handed statement about the left or the right. It was just that we were living in a very wild time. And I think Mikey yeah. represents some of that, you know, and Absolutely. Mikey could represent Clinton as well. You know, it's whatever you want it to be, you know, yeah. which is good totally. writing. Yeah, absolutely. Just a few last things for people who may not know. Can you share what the title means? Yeah, well, you know, obviously Red Rocket in, uh, is a euphemism for like a dog's penis. So I think there's that phallic, you know, thing. It's also could mean like, you know, uh, this guy's just taken off for the stars and he's just, you know, uh, very ambitious. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, phallic stuff. I actually brought this up in Sean's like, I didn't think about that. But throughout the movie, there's these like smokestacks of the industrial world. And I just think there's a lot of that, you know, like I said, that big dick energy, that's sort yes. of very American, like machismo. So I, I think it could mean, uh, uh, it could be interpreted, interpreted as any of those things. Um, but I think it's also just a funny pun. And he likes to work with colors, tangerine, Florida Project had a lot of those purples, red. Yes. There's a lot of red. There's a lot of red, which is a sexy color in this one. Um, so he knows what he's doing. It's sort of a theme, and I, I just think it's a funny and it kind of you know the movie is a comedy. I want people to remember when they go see it. It's okay to laugh. It's a dark comedy, but you know it's funny. So let's have some fun. And I think we need movies like this again. Everything's gotten so, and I don't mean to. I'm not disrespecting other movies, but I miss the kind of movies that you go to that were edgy and gritty and sexy and raw and on film. And and and, and you walk out of there feeling something, whether it's good or bad. I remember at Tell You Right, a woman said to me after seeing your movie, I needed a shot of tequila, a cigarette, and a shower. And I said, that's the best <laughs> response. I've heard yeah. we did our job, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's okay. We're not saying that these are, that because we're making this movie, we're not saying that this is good, but this is real life. Yeah. 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 And it's this real life's ugly and dirty and raw. And, you know, that's, this movie is shines the light on the dark subject matter, which is sort of the, the, you know, side of America that isn't Hollywood and LA and New York. It's a, you know, and that's what Sean's really like made his name doing. I mean, it's pretty, yes. uh, uh, in each of these movies, there's some, some element of sex workers. There's people, but generally just people on the fringes of society. And it's, it's something we don't often otherwise get to see, but, um, I do want to make sure to ask you to talk about one of the people who you share a lot of scenes with here, because I'd never heard of her. I don't know if she'd done much before, but I, I was very impressed. And that's uh, Susie son who plays strawberry. And I actually was like, is this, how, how old is this girl? I, I thought as it turns out, she's in her mid twenties, but she did a great job playing the, I, I thought the kind of both the, it, basically exactly what that part called for, which would, would not have, I don't think been very easy to, cast like to, to find anywhere so anything you can say about your work together with her which you guys have some some funny intense very memorable scenes yeah she was you know obviously uh she is an entertainer she grew up singing she wasn't like a uh, someone like that he just found um that had never been in, in in entertainment before she was actually in la he found her at a movie theater standing in line at the theater uh and said oh i gotta meet her and went up to her was like i need to put her in something one day he just knew um so she had come to la to be in show business so it wasn't like she was completely green you know she you saw in that scene she's really playing that song she knows how to sing she's a dancer she's a you know um uh she's a performer so i think she naturally has the thing that whatever that thing is uh, but yes she was nervous i remember like her you know she had never done anything like this before and i remember before shooting she would be nervous and i'd really help her calm down and relax and you know just you know, make her feel at ease especially because we had very intimate love scenes that were very vulnerable so we just really communicated just made i just really made her feel comfortable and i remember her being nervous and then the cameras would roll 
and she would just shine and the cameras would cut and she would be like, Oh, I, I don't know if that was any good. I'm like, that was amazing. Uh, you, whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. Your instinct is right on. And I think she was just, you know, it was, it was a lot for her to be, I mean, it was a lot for me and I've been in this business a long time and shooting in these conditions was rough and she nailed it every time. Her instinct was so good that I knew right away after our first day of shooting, I'm like, oh, she's going to be fine. She was just obviously young and in her head and doubt. She had some self-doubt, but as the movie went on, she gained confidence and well, got better and, uh, and better. I'm- I'm sure yeah. it's scary for anybody, as you say, maybe even uh, you with some of the stuff where the intimate scenes, some of the some nudity, like all that stuff must be scary for for particularly for somebody who's not been around very much before in her case. But I mean, even for you, I would think like that that cannot be like just another scene. Right. Right. Yeah, that's definitely, you know. Never comfortable uh, to be like that, you know, nude with people around. But again, it's it's just work, and it's and it's like uh, I've done it before. Like I remember when I did Felicity, I had to do nude scenes with Felicity because my character was the one who ended her virginity. Yes, the whole yes. point of Felicity was who's she going to sleep with, Brad or Noel, the two guys she was dating. I come on as a guest star, and I was the one that slept with her. So we had to do nude scenes together, and um, you know she. You got a guy with a camera, a guy with a boom. It's not like it's, it's, it doesn't feel like you're really, you know, you got to use your imagination, obviously, and pretend you're in that moment, but you're working. And I, and, and for me, it, I never really got, uh, I'm not that uncomfortable with it. I just wanted to make sure that my female co-stars were comfortable because I feel more for them. They felt a little more, you know, uncomfortable. So we just communicated, we, we talked about it and we made it work and everybody was fine with it. And, you know, in the end of the day, when you watch the movie, if you add up all of the moments of actually like sexual, you know, content, it's actually pretty short. It would just be like quick little bam, 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 you know, and then it's out. So it wasn't right. gratuitous, which I like. It wasn't like over the top. You just you get the idea and it's work, man. It's just work. And it's a just a great movie. And so I want to end by just asking you kind of a big picture question, because I, again, literally from that first premiere at Cannes, where there's, I don't know, like a five minute ovation. They put the camera on you. People go nuts. Um, since then, there's been Telluride and all kinds of other festivals and and buzz and all kinds of stuff about just a great reaction to your work in addition to the movie. But I just want to ask you for for you, what has it meant to you after all these years of, you know, as you as we've been talking about wanting to show what you can do, you now get a chance to do it. You everybody feels you knocked it out of the park. So what's it meant to you to have that kind of response to also know that that's how people respond to the movie, but not yet be able to show it to everyone. And finally, uh, do you find that it's already changed things for you? Are you getting, you know, a bounce out of it? Yeah. Um, I, it's a good question. You know, I'm, I'm very grateful. I'm very humbled and appreciative and it feels I'd be lying if I you know, said that I wasn't flattered that other, like we talked about before, like, you know, people will come up to me and, you know, give me street love from either scary movie or my music or for social media characters I've done, but I've never really got the, um, respect and, and, uh, 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 genuine, you know, a positive feedback from other filmmakers, actors at these festivals, um, producers, writers, you know, people that are really about the art of, of being cinephiles and making really good movies. I've never been in this world before. So to get that, it feels good. It feels good to be respected as an actor and, and really getting that, you know, uh, from my peers, um, it feels amazing. And I'm just humbled by it. And there's been a lot of, you know, offers coming in now without even having seen the movie, just from the buzz, because the movie's barely been seen. Um, I'm getting direct offers that a year ago I would have killed for that. Now I'm, you know, I'm actually like, you know, Oh, I, I, I can't commit to anything right now. I want to keep my options open. Right, so when this right. movie comes out, who knows who's going to see it? I don't want to get ahead of myself, but you know, a lot of people are going to see this movie within the industry and hopefully get jazzed and want to work with me I, in a perfect world. Again, I'm just, I'm saying that out of I have hoping no that this happens. So I want to keep everything open to see what presents itself and continue to work with amazing filmmakers and, and really in this window of time that I have really make the right decisions. I just want to keep my head down, be humble, work hard, 
and do good work and keep surprising people with interesting roles and not get caught into the, the, the trap of chasing the fame and the money because I've been there and that doesn't make you happy. I just want to do good work, truly. I just want to work with great filmmakers and, and keep surprising myself and other people and raising the bar. And uh, I'm, I'm ready for the moment. I, I want, I'm, here, I'm here and it's time and, and I'm ready. Well, it's just for anyone listening who hasn't seen it yet, you, you will not see a better performance this year. Go check it out. And oh, thank, uh, you. thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Scott, I really appreciate those words. That means a lot. And people like you that truly like the movie, this it just means so much. And I'm, I'm very proud of it. And, uh, you know, if anything else, like this movie, will I have a feeling will live almost like a cult movie like his other ones for a long time. So I'm just happy with the result. Now I can sit back and see what happens. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.